when I think about in particular some of our portfolio companies and and the work that is at hand for them as they are thinking about growing their business and and all of the myriad number of challenges that are coming their way as they think about perhaps acquiring other businesses thinking about their own workforces their own geographical locations and whatever regulatory or policy changes might be happening there thinking about their industry and how they progress forward there's so many decisions at hand for the leadership of those companies and it's really incumbent upon us to be thinking about how to inject sustainability principles into the center of their world rather than just applying it on the outside. Welcome to the Future in Sound podcast. I'm your host, Jen Wilson. This is a podcast where we talk about prioritizing people, planet, and profit. In each episode, we speak with world-leading experts who help us see the future we want and our role in it. This is episode 19, Inject Sustainability. Quick story. I was at a sustainability and private equity event a couple of weeks ago. And I remember watching this one particular panel looking at macro trends in sustainability within the industry. There were lots of different acronyms thrown out. The alphabet soup of ESG was alive and well. Different ways of getting reports out, different ways of deciding on which key performance indicators to track within a portfolio. And then there was one participant on the panel who had what I would call a mic drop moment. When she asked the question, you know, what are these reports for? Let's not forget what these reports are for. And I remember thinking that was just such an important question in that moment to really always take a step back, even if we feel we're making progress in terms of complying to different regulations or voluntary standards on sustainability, to really think about, well, you know, what are the actions that we're driving? How are we improving the companies within our portfolios through ESG? And that particular individual who had her mic drop moment is our guest on today's episode. Elsa Palanza is the Global Head of Sustainability and ESG at ICG. She's responsible for firm-wide ESG strategy, as well as responsible investing. Having worked across the FTSE and Fortune companies, plus the not-for-profit sectors for the past 20 years, Elsa has extensive experience in launching and driving ambitious and diverse ESG initiatives. Elsa joins ICG from Barclays, where she was Global Head of Sustainability and ESG for four years. Prior to that, she worked for the Clinton Global Initiative and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, giving her a unique and global perspective on best practices in sustainability and cross-sector partnerships. Elsa, welcome to the Future in Sound podcast. Thanks so much, Jen. I'm really happy to be with you. Thanks. This is great. Well, look, I've been really looking forward to this conversation as you know, Rico does some work in the private equity space, and we've spoken to lots of authors. 
and some great professors. And Elsa, you are the first private equity professional to join our podcast. Oh, gosh, I feel really honored. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Absolutely. I was I just knew I was actually watching you on stage at a recent industry event here in London. I thought Elsa has a great message. She's exactly the type of person that I'd love to have on the future and sound. So I'm, I'm delighted that you're here. Well, thanks so much. I genuinely feel honored. It's great. I am looking forward to diving into it with you. Thanks. Great. Well, let's start with how you found yourself in your current role. So what drew you to private equity and or the sustainability space? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's funny whenever someone asks me this question, because I think, well, gosh, if you'd asked me this, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, never in a million years <laughs> would I have thought that I'd be in the private equity space, the private market space, let alone in finance broadly. I think, as you mentioned in the intro, I've had a pretty um, non-linear career trajectory to get to the place where I am. But I think there's some interesting trends that have come through, which really sometimes you only see in retrospect. I've spent the majority of my career really thinking about how you leverage the capacity of the private sector in particular, but of, of the different actors in the global economy to think about how we influence for good. That's sort of the simplest way to say it. So, you know, now as we get into the sustainability space, there's lots of ways to frame this. And there's there's different nomenclature thinking about materiality and double materiality, which I'm sure we can get into down the road. But I think fundamentally, it's really been about how do we harness markets? How do we harness potential partnerships? How do we harness the intelligence of individual actors and their unique capabilities to think about how we can leverage those for the planet and for humans? Um, and for the systems that we have created over time. And so I've come to this spot by way of, you know, as you said in the intro, working first at the Clinton Global Initiative, CGI, thinking about how we build big cross-sector partnerships to solve some of the world's most sort of intractable um, challenges. And that was really varied work. We were looking at everything from what you might think of as traditional sustainability matters like the built environment or ecosystems, all the way through to global health and global education. And I had this real privilege of getting to lead the team of subject matter experts who were effectively in-house advisors for these different coalitions who were trying to put these projects together. And so I got to see from sort of an eagle-eyed perspective what worked, what didn't work, where were some trends really heading as people tried to come up with really innovative solutions. And then very importantly, think about how does the flow of finance actually help to succeed there? How does that inject itself into the process to make sure that you're seeing better outcomes? Sometimes that was philanthropic capital, no doubt, but I think more and more we were seeing finance industry participants thinking about how they could actually deploy capital in really intelligent and thoughtful ways. And you know that really caught my attention then. And then lo and behold, I was approached by Barclays uh, a number of years ago, which in and of itself was a little bit idiosyncratic. I, I was working for, um, for the Gates Foundation and, and Project Everyone thinking about how to advance progress on the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And they brought me in really to think about how to build a model to integrate the private sector specifically. Um, and when Bar Barclays approached me, they said, you know, we need somebody to be helping us write policy for things like climate change. And lo and behold, it ended up really expanding into um, a full on, you know, sustainability leadership role and, and was an exciting, exciting opportunity. And I think it was at a time when banks were moving at warp speed to really 
build their own policies. There was a lot of coalition building and a lot of partnership happening within the industry to be thinking about how the how the banking sector as a whole needed to move forward because I, I think quite frankly it it had been quite slow to pick up on the responsibility and the opportunity associated with climate in particular. So um, after several fast and furious years in, in banking, which was a really an incredible learning experience and a, and a great opportunity, uh, I was watching two things. I think first, the flow of capital and, and how much was really flowing into the private markets and how there was an opportunity to make sure that there was also some real injection of, of sustainability thinking into that space. And also just the agility and the entrepreneurial spirit associated with the with um, the private markets at large and, and private equity in particular was something that was really attractive to me. And you know, ICG had a sense of of leadership and real commitment to this at at the top, which was obviously very important if you want to make make continued progress. So those were the qualities at hand, and really what drew me to to thinking about joining ICG. And it's now been about ten months in role, so it's gone very quickly, and it's been it's been great so far. And also, when you mentioned materiality and double materiality for the audience, materiality tends to be the financial implications or you know risk uh, to a company, whereas double materiality is considering um, not just the the risks and opportunities related to ESG for a company or a fund, but also the risks and opportunities or impacts on people and planet outside of the company. One of the things that I, I heard from you that was really interesting was, you know, during your time at uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation, you really learned what, you know, does and does not work with some of these sort of bigger projects. And I'm wondering if there are any lessons from that experience that you draw on today in your role at ICG. Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, some of them are more just behavioral in nature. And what I mean by that is when I think about in particular, some of our portfolio companies and and the work that is at hand for them as they are thinking about growing their business and and all of the myriad number of challenges that are coming their way as they think about perhaps acquiring other businesses, thinking about their own workforces, their own geographical locations and whatever regulatory or policy changes might be happening there, thinking about their industry and how they progress forward. There's so many decisions at hand for the leadership of those companies and it's really incumbent upon us to be thinking about how to inject sustainability principles into the center of their world rather than just applying it on the outside. I really learned that at, at TGI and then also observing that with, with the Gates Foundation project I worked on. I think the way you build coalitions and the way you work symbiotically is by making sure that you're finding those win-wins. And that might sound cliche, but it's so important because this could just be a series of people, you know, in particular private equity firms saying, you know, well, we might have a large equity stake in you portfolio company. And so we're effectively going to demand that you do X, Y, and Z. And sure, you might have the capability to do that or the influence to do that. But is that really actually building a company that is going to embrace the sustainability um, principles for the future? Is that really injecting that knowledge and capability and commitment to those principles into the leadership of that company? Is it really helping them understand how this is actually going to be a value add if they were to deeply integrate it into their own business planning and their own strategic planning? So I think that's probably the biggest, again, sort of behavioral principle that I think is really important. And I don't think we've figured out yet any magical 
tools or quippy ways I can sum up to tell you how to do that. But it's just like so many things, it's about building relationships and thinking about how you can support people in their own individual journeys. And so while we think just as much about building great systems and great data capturing mechanisms and great reporting mechanisms because we are here to serve our investors and making sure we're sharing with them what we're doing, you also have to really approach every individual challenge in an individual kind of way and think about what is unique to them. And so when you are just defining materiality, that really does come down to thinking about what are the material factors to each individual business? What are they facing day in and day out? What sector are they in that might expose them to things like water shortages or workforce challenges or whatever it might be. And so then you really sort of find a way to walk hand in hand with them and support them in that way. That's the high ideal anyway. And when you've spoken in the past about, you know, strategy led versus a regulation led approach to ESG, is it tied to this injection um, of ESG into the core of a business? Or, you know, I'd really love to hear more about that. Yeah, I think it's fascinating to me to see how swiftly ESG regulatory regimes are are growing and advancing and changing. Um, it's certainly making a lot of work for all of us who are, are thinking about how to work across uh, geographic lines, that's for sure. But I think the important thing about that is that it's it's building into the very fabric of the financial system a requirement for there to be a thoughtful, careful, risk-led approach to ESG factors. That's important. But fundamentally, regulation should really be the floor and not the ceiling. So it's here, you know, regulatory regimes are here to protect consumers. They're here to make sure that there there is an undue risk built into the system. They're here sort of as this protection mechanism as a whole. And that's really, really important. And to make sure there's stability built into the financial system, all of which, of course, we've seen play out in really real ways over the last decade. And so it's critical that it's there. And I think it's really a positive sign that, that, there is an effort to make sure that from a top-down level, there's a curbing of greenwashing. There's a really keen eye on making sure that when people are defining a fund as sustainable, quote-unquote, that there's some sense of commonality in how you define that word. These things are all really positive. But there's no way that a regulatory regime can define exactly how you really lean into sustainability from a comprehensive really deeply thought out way that is bespoke to your individual business. I think that's one thing that's really important about the private markets in particular is that each one of our firms is so different in the way that we structure deals, the way that we invest. Uh, Sure, the asset classes are sort of broadly defined the same way, but I think there's a lot of differentiation and uniqueness about, about that. And that's great. That's what makes each of us competitive in our own way. It also means that there's a way we need to build our ESG approach and sustainability approach to be harmonizing and matching and really injecting those individual strategies with those principles in a way that's actually going to serve our individual investment theses. It's interesting because it seems like, you know, um, by really, you know, where you started, which was, we've got to think about relationships, building relationships, you know, injecting, you know, ESG into the core of what uh, companies do, making it relevant to their day-to-day. So it's not this sort of peripheral set of issues. I'm just wondering, you know, as a fund, engaging companies, obviously there's going to be a bit of a tension between sort of fund level strategy and here's the direction we want to go and the report we want to write versus, you know, on the ground, the companies and having a more bespoke approach. How do you manage that potential tension? 
Yeah, I think it goes back to some of what I was saying before. I mean, I, I think part of it is having an understanding of where these companies are from a starting point and then building on that. So one of the things we do at ICG is when we're making a pre-investment stage, before we ever even actually make the investment, we do some investigative work effectively. And we have an ESG assessment form. And this is really not a box ticking exercise. It's really more a baselining exercise where we start and really, this is important that the deal teams are, are really part of this process. They're the ones who are really filling this out to begin with, where we effectively just get to know the nature of the sustainability credentials of a given business. So we, we ask questions like, how mature is their understanding of ESG, for example? Do they have someone who's actually responsible for this at a senior level? Have they started to set some targets, whether they be around diversity and inclusion or around climate change or or even around you know safety protocol, et cetera, all of these factors, there's a universe of, <laughs> of potential sustainability and ESG factors that might apply to a given company, but we want to understand how much are they understanding this is critical and they have some systems built into their own company to look at that. We also look at whether they have done some baselining of their own GHT emissions. We look at whether or not they're measuring those things. We look at whether they have some employee management practices and what kind of engagement and how are they measuring whether or not they have diversity representation in their leadership and within their full staff. There's a whole series of factors that we're looking at. And again, it's we do have some red lines. We have We have an exclusion list where we will not go. But really, more importantly, beyond that list, the once the investment team assesses for those red lines and they move past that, it's about where is the starting point of a given company and then how do we build a plan to actually work with them individually to help make progress over the course of the time that we have invested in them if we do indeed go forward with that investment. Got it. So it sounds like there's an assessment of the maturity on, on ESG and sustainability early on in yes, the process absolutely. and then looking to move the needle over time rather than a one-size-fits-all approach. Completely. I think the system, the the, um, the frameworks we use to do that assessment need to be consistent because then you can show, you know, like for like, and you can show progress over time. But the individual approaches need to be different depending on the nature of the business. This ties really interestingly to just more of a macro discussion about, you know, where the sustainability space, you know, has been, where we are today, and where we're going. And Elsa, you know, you've been global leader in ESG and sustainability for several years. And I, I wanted to get a sense from you, you know, what have you seen change in the past couple of years? So I think I think this has really changed from being a, a nice to do or a, a sort of parallel activity to being core to, to a given business. And I think that might be true for, for any kind of business on the planet. And then it's certainly true for the financial industry. Broadly speaking, I've seen an extraordinary amount of, of movement happening where it might have been even just a few years ago, some firms might have had sustainability and ESG teams and some might have not. And that's just not really a question any longer. I think this is about you know building in the necessary risk assessment needed to make sure that you're not exposing the firm to unnecessary risks either related to climate change or to reputational risk because you're engaging with a company that's really doing like quite terrible things on a social front, for example. 
But there's also a huge amounts of opportunity here. And I think that's been the big differentiating factor that's really exciting to me. You know, if you want to harness markets, tie them to opportunities. <laughs> Everyone's worried about risks and we need to make sure we're, we're doing our utmost to up- uphold what's necessary in order to mitigate those risks. But the, the way you really drive meaningful change is to lay out a whole pathway of continued opportunity and an expansive pathway of opportunity. And I think the more that we can see symbiosis in the building of new businesses in the transition of the global economy and in us as financial institutions being the stewards of that transition and helping to grow the economy of the future, you know, there's a huge pie um, that's ever growing and waiting for all of us to participate in that. And and it really can be win-win-win opportunities for everyone if you really do it right. And so I think that's that's both the really bright light opportunity for all of us. And and I think it's really hopefully where the trend of ESG and sustainability will continue to head. And this means, you know, going right to the top of a firm and thinking about strategic direction of decision making and, and where the firm is headed and the kinds of decisions that are being made about where and how we're making investments. And it also has a great effect on on the businesses that we are choosing to support and the growth of those businesses and where consumers want those to go. And so it runs all the way up and down the value chain. And I think, you know, I get quite excited when you see trends heading all in the, in the right direction. I love this idea of a bright light and growing the pie. I'm wondering if you think through, okay, in the audience, there are going to be some, you know, fund uh, managers who are thinking, great, Elsa, I want to pursue that pie you know, on Monday morning, what do I need to do differently? What are some of the actions that fund managers can take in order to ensure that it's not just a risk-based regulatory compliance approach and they're really embedding decisions around, you know, looking for the opportunities and the win-wins? Yeah. Well, this is, this is the golden ticket, isn't it? This is where we all want to be going. I mean, I think at its core, it's kind of, it's, it's effectively thinking about the next the next phase of any any individual business. So let's take an individual business as an example. And a lot of what you'll hear sustainability professionals talk about, particularly in private equity, is it's not just about when you might have a business in your portfolio and you're thinking about exit, who might be buying that business, but who then would be looking to buy it from them? And what are they going to be looking for? So you're thinking, you know, five, 10, you know, 12, 15 years in ahead. And what do we think the global economy is going to look like? What does the footprint of those businesses need to be? What are they serving? How are they producing materials or creating services for the economy that are going to be fit for purpose? And the more you can imagine the nature of that transition and the nature of that shift in the economy, which is happening whether we want it to or not, then the more you're helping to, first of all, think about where you can make really strategic investments in companies that are going to grow and be in incredibly high demand. But second, to think about how you can build those principles into the businesses that are already in your portfolios so that they just become more and more valuable and are more and more fit for the next generation economy. And I don't mean like 20 years down the road. I mean, right around the corner, we're seeing this happen really quickly. And so it's an opportunity for imagination, but also just from a macro perspective, thinking about where the economy is headed. You know, an interesting example of this obviously is AI. I think on, you know, we're obviously it's taking up the headlines left, right, and center these days. And on one level, you might see it really posing a significant threat to some business models, and it might be harnessed by others to change the nature of their business and really be able to 
scale or rapidly produce or whatever it might be that they do in a way that wouldn't have been possible before. So some of this does involve creativity, dare I say that word, in a way that is, I think, could, could be really generative. I like the use of the word creativity on this podcast, <laughs> Elsa. It's welcome here. I wanted to ask, so, okay, I'm, I'm pretending that I'm the CEO of a portfolio company or a potential uh, a company to join your portfolio. And I'm hearing this, I'm liking it. You know, what would it feel like for me to join your portfolio? What are some of the moments that there would be an opportunity for us to you know, work together to have a better sense of what the economy is going to be over the next, you know, in the next five to 10 years. How would you influence me on this journey? Yeah, it's a, it's a great, it's a great question. Well, you'd, you'd first be having a conversation with our investment team. And, and I would say, if this is just up to me and my team, then we're not doing something right. Because it needs to be that my team is here as a horizon scanning team, and uh, we're staying just ahead of where things might be at this moment in time so we can feed that intelligence into the firm and so we can give our deal teams what they need to be really injecting this into their decision making and be thinking about how they advise these companies day in and day out. So I think as a, as a CEO of some amazing high growth company, you'd first be chatting with our deal team about you know, no doubt about um, the financial structuring of your of your firm, but you'd also be talking about where you're headed, where your strategic direction is going. And inherent in that are some really important sustainability questions. We'd be asking you foundational questions that I mentioned earlier on in our conversation about the kind of baselining that we do with a company. But then very importantly, we'd be building a plan for how we work together with you and your team to be embedding that into, you know, and it's, it's often, you know, people often talk about the hundred day plan and some of it needs to happen in the first hundred days. And some of it really is about adapting and responding as the business grows. You have a very different set of paradigms and considerations if you are a company with a certain footprint, but if you go through, you know, a large scale buy and build process where suddenly you have a huge amount of M&A activity and you're the, the footprint or the nature and the the identity of your company looks dramatically different from what it did even just a year and a half ago. You have to take these things and adapt them and, and change them and really utilize your ability to actually reimagine what needs to happen with that business in order to build sustainability and in a way that's actually going to be fit for the nature of that company as it exists now and not just then. Well, I'm energized just hearing uh, about the program, Elsa. Thank you for taking us through that. You know, I'd love to continue the conversation for much longer, but um, we're we're starting to run out of time. And so I'd love to end our conversation with one of my favorite questions, which is really interested in, in hearing more about you know how you've shaped your lens and how you work. And so if you had to name a book or two that have really shaped the way you think in your work, what books would you name? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think there there's certainly a no shortage of industry books that I might point you to. And I think there's been a lot of great leaders who've written effectively manuals on sustainability. But I, the things that really spur me forward are more authors over the course of the centuries, really, who have embraced the very sort of central nodes of what we're doing here. And what I mean by that is, you know, naturalists and poets and people who have written about the natural world and, and humans' relationship to it for a really long time 
I love E.O. Wilson's writing. You know, he has an incredible book on ants. <laughs> if anyone's interested, it's amazing to think about systems. And actually, I would be remiss if I didn't mention a really beautiful book that was released just a couple of years ago. It's actually an anthology collection of essays and poetry written by women and edited by two really amazing women, Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson and Dr. Catherine Wilkinson. And it's called All We Can Save, uh, really focused on climate, but with such a hopeful soul-filled lens. And so if you ever want to feel a little bit better and full of hope on, you know, about all that we can do and all that we can save from a climate perspective, I'd highly recommend that. Elsa, thanks so much for joining us on The Future in Sound. Jen, thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Elsa, for joining us. You can learn more about her work by checking out the links in the episode description or by visiting read.co.com slash The Future and Sound. The Future and Sound podcast is written and hosted by Jen Wilson and produced by Chris Attaway. This podcast is brought to you by Rico, a software as a services company helping clients achieve resilient competitive advantage in the long term. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to tell a friend about it. And if you have a moment to rate us in your podcast app, I would really appreciate it. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.